It's back to the future with the return of a national party policy of years gone by. So what is social investment and does it work? For that and everything else worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode contains some extremely mild swearing. Honestly, do we even need this? Onward. Adam, I'm just going to find a photo on my phone from my holiday last year. Hang on. Is this an episode of what I did on my holidays? No, it is not. But hang on. Look. Where is it? You can never find what you want. Look, while I try to find it, I'll fill you in. It was February 2021, and I was in Te Namu, the South Island, with my wife. I woke up early to go for a run along the track beside Lake Tekapo. Early? On your holiday? Yeah. Anyway, it was a picture-perfect morning. See? Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Nice sunrise. Perfect picture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Peaceful, tranquil, no one else around. I made my way towards the climb up Mount John. Absolute bliss. See? Yep, yep. That's nice too. Well done. Yeah. So... Like I was saying, I was enjoying the serenity. The serenity, Adam. When, bang, this thing crashes out of the bush in front of me. Oh. Yeah, I got a hell of a fright. And the thing was, it hopped away. Hopped away? Yeah, hopped away. Now look, I've had plenty of animal encounters running in the bush in New Zealand. Oh, what? Uh, rabbits, pigs, deer. I've even been attacked by a pukekel once. Uh, what? Pukekel? You know, what you're saying is, I guess, this thing you saw wasn't any of those. No, it most certainly wasn't. It was hopping. Hopping. So, what was it, Eugene? Well, after it had hopped away from me, it stopped on a bank by the lake. So, I did what anyone in this day and age would do. Took a selfie? Mm, not quite. Almost. I took a photo of it. See? Hang on. Let me zoom in. Huh. Is that a kangaroo in the South Island of New Zealand? Almost. A little way along the track, I saw this sign. Let me see. Scene one, say so. Catchy. And there's a picture and it says, if you see a wallaby, they're an unwanted... Uh, So it was a wallaby. Yeah, a wallaby. In New Zealand. In Aotearoa. Tēnā koutou katoa, nō mai hoki mai. Greetings and welcome back to True Story. I'm Eugene Bingham. And I'm Adam Dudding. Kia ora. Come along as we embark on a whistle-stop tour of three places where humans are fiddling around with the natural world. Where it turns out playing God isn't always that straightforward. True Story number two. Bad Seeds. Okay, see that sign? Yeah. That sign, so big giant wallaby picture? Yeah. Yeah. You can report it, okay. So that's because we've now crossed over out of the containment zone. We're on the road down south to find out about the hunt for Australian natives which have hopped across the Tasman and taken up camp in large tracts of the countryside. So there's this, like, ring around part of Canterbury where they're trying to contain the wallabies. And if you see one outside of that containment area, that's the ones they want to jump on. So the one that I saw, that was just outside the containment area. Got it. Well, look, as much as I'm sure Eugene knows what he's talking about... G'day. It's time to meet some actual experts. Yeah, so this river is the southern border of the wallaby containment area. Yeah. 
We're catching up with Brent Glentworth. Brent Glentworth, I work for Environment Canterbury. I'm the Wallaby Program Lead under the National Program and I've been working in the pest control field for around 40 years. There's not much Brent doesn't know about catching and containing wallabies. Some of it a bit surprising, I've got to say. So they swim across the um, Waitaki River, the, you know, use the dams. They swim? I didn't know wallabies swim. Yeah, yeah. Oh. There really is a lot to know about wallabies. We have six species of wallaby in New Wallaby as far afield as Blenheim. Bennett's wallaby, which is the biggest one in Wellington last year. So it didn't get up to 24 kilos. But Brent's also keen for us to meet two other people, two real-life wallaby hunters. Yeah, Ross Chilton. I've lived around here all my life. Worked in this area all my life, mainly doing rabbits, but, yeah, last few years I've been doing wallabies. And? I'm Sam Chilton. Yeah, I've just been here for six months or so. Yeah, still learning what I'm doing. So, yeah, Sam is Ross's daughter, and Ross is a private contractor who does work for Environment Canterbury. He has two other staff. The other two are up in those hills somewhere looking. Patrolling a vast area on the lookout for wallabies with the help of these guys. What are the names? That one's Choice. The white one. And then that's Coco. And then that one's Tui. And those two are Dad's dogs and that one's mine. And then this is Touch and Mac. And then that's Boobia. And they're quite, in- they're quite interested in the smell of the microphone. Oh, yes. Right, definitely. They're very quiet. They're not barky or yelpy or... Oh, they'll bark if there's a wallaby or anything. So Sam and Ross, the wallaby hunters, and the rest of the crew, human, and their band of four-legged assistants, all fitted with GPS collars. Oh, right, so there's aerials, aren't they, obviously? The big sticky up that's on the GPS. Set to work, which, Ross explains, involves walking up the gullies and through the scrub until the dogs let them know there's a wallaby nearby. Usually... You can tell these dogs that there's a wallaby around as the tails go faster when there's a wallaby scent. Yesterday we got onto a scent, but we couldn't find the wallaby. He was there, but we couldn't find him. Right. What do, you, what do you think he was doing? Probably sitting there watching us. What's left there are getting very cunning, getting very hard to find. When you say cunning, can you describe that a bit to me? Um. Well, unless a dog pretty much stands on them. Well, you stand on them, they'll stay there. And if you're walking up the gully, you've got your wind up your ass, and they'll sneak out on you. Yeah. So they're quite quite cunning and quite yeah. shy. Oh, yeah. 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 If someone trying to shoot you, you'd get cunning, wouldn't you? <laughs> so, yeah. Sneaky Aussies, eh? Yeah, they are. Yeah. It was something we hadn't really thought about when it comes to catching wallabies, and that was how much time you have to spend staring at the ground, looking for what they call in the business, sign. Basically, well... Well, so you become a bit of a, an expert at... A shitologist. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which, clearly, we weren't. Something that was exposed soon after, when we thought we'd stumbled across a telltale sign of a wallaby. What are we looking at so here? What's that? Yeah. Luckily, we had an actual expert with us. Sam, the wallaby hunter. So that's cat shit. It can quite often look like wallaby shit, but um, I learned not to pick it up pretty quick at work because it smells really bad, like real bad. You can tell it's cat shit because of the hair that is coming off it. Wallabies don't often have hair in their poo. And, yeah, when you break it open, it won't be grass. It'll be a lot of other stuff, and, yeah, you can yeah. definitely smell it before right. you... So when you say cat, it's not 
Moggy, is that or it's a mystic cat? <laughs> no, it's just wild cat, eh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But some generations ago, it was somebody's moggy, but now yeah. it's feral. Yeah. Once again, it turns out that I didn't know shit, and Brent tells us kindly, of course. Well, actually, there was a lot of feral cats introduced in New Zealand for the rabbit plague early on, so they were used as a buyer mm. control. So there was a big campaign. This is going back in the eighteen hundreds for rabbit management, but. Actually, that really backfired. Obviously, cats switched to native birds and native reptiles and invertebrates, so another um, biological control attempt got backfiring. How many times <laughs> How many times are we going to do that? Because that's the thing, right? The history of pest management in Aotearoa is littered with dumb decisions and stories that resemble a certain old nursery rhyme. There was an old lady who swallowed a fly I don't know why she swallowed a fly, perhaps she'll die. There was an old lady who swallowed a spider. So we had rabbits introduced for food and sport, and then when they got out of control, we had stoats and ferrets brought into the country to get on top of the rabbits, but then they turned on the native birds. And remember those feral cats were eating the native birds too. Perhaps she'll die. Quick side note. That's your choir, isn't it, Adam? Yeah, and now we've got a nursery rhyme in our repertoire. Anyway, and then there's possums, which have also taken a decent stab at wiping out the native bird population. One of our colleagues, Olivia, her dad likes collecting wacky news stories, and he has this 1929 newspaper clipping about plans to liberate possums on the Coromandel. It was meant to be a way for trappers and farmers to cash in on the fur, which was pretty valuable back then. The story reads, quote, If possums ever become a pest, they could be exterminated quite easily, but they would never become a menace like deer, end quote. Oh, dear. Not that kind of deer, Adam. Yeah, I know, I know. Anyway, the point is, there have been some god-awful decisions made over the years, including the one that left New Zealand's high country swarming with bouncing Australian marsupials. They were brought to the South Island back in the 1800s. There were only three or four initially, but they bred like... Rabbits? Yeah. And they were protected, so the numbers took off. Here's Brent again. Um, And it was around the late 1940s that farmers became worried about the spreading number of wallaby at that time in the hunt. They were causing havoc. They were um, fouling pasture, also removing a lot of pasture. High dietary overlap with sheep. You might be wondering, why were wallabies introduced in the first place? Uh, curio, really, because they were unique. Just the, the weirdness of seeing a... We're lucky we don't have zebras under the same principle, I guess. <laughs> yeah, actually, Governor George Gray did release, bring zebras into New Zealand and had them on Kawao Island with the other species of wallaby. So. so yeah, like Brent said, in the late 1800s, Governor Gray brought wallabies to Kawao Island and Auckland's Hauraki Gulf, along with all kinds of animals, monkeys, emus, kookaburras. There are still wallabies on Kawo Island to this day. I wish there were zebras. Anyway, I think we're getting off track. Back to the wallabies of the South Island's high country. Once the farmers started complaining, attempts were made by the government to get the wallabies under control. And there was some success. And then, in 1989, farmers took over that responsibility. The farmers felt they would quite happily take it from here. Job done. Yeah, until things kind of crept out of control. Uh, The levels started to come up really gradually, and a lot of landowners over the last 30 years probably haven't noticed. In the past few years, things have reached a crunch point. A Landcare research study found if nothing was done, 
By 2050, there would be $80 million a year in damage to farms and forests. But it's not just about farmers and forestry owners. These introduced animals have acquired local tastes. Uh, there's alpine plants like the salmicia, the little uh, native endemic daisy. It has a grey, silvery leaf. In wintertime, the wallabies will pluck that leaf out. They'll take one bite of the fleshy legule, the bit where it joins the base, and discard that leaf. So No one wants fussy-eating, rampant wallabies roaming the country, right? So in 2020, the government announced a nationwide program worth $27 million to deal with them. And Brent is pleased with the progress that is being made in his patch in Canterbury. So our aim by 2025 is to have localised eradication outside our containment area in Canterbury. We've made some really good inroads in the last two years. Okay, so that's the wallabies. As far as pests go, they seem a pretty clear-cut case. Get rid of them. Yeah, but we've got to remember, with pest management, there are tricky factors at play. It's never really clear-cut. When you tinker with nature, for good or evil, there's a balancing act to perform. After Brent told us the history of New Zealand's wallabies, we drifted into a discussion with him about the ethics of it all, which was something Adam and I had been talking about on the drive to meet Brent. They are, and it's no fault of the wallaby that he arrived in New Zealand. There, there is um, a social licence aspect to how we deliver control. We need to destroy them, but we need to destroy them humanely and quickly. You mentioned it's not their fault that they're here. Um, it's absolutely true. But the, I guess I just wanted to ask a sort of philosophical question. Is there a problem with them because they are exotic? You know, if they were native, would it be an issue? No, there they wouldn't. And um, that is the issue, is that we have our own suite of native and endemic species, which is unique and special to Aotearoa. And the wallaby is unique to Australia, where they come from. And they're finding that habitat because they had a, a predator-prey cycle that effectively keeps them in check and they're in sync with their environment. But in New Zealand, they haven't got that predator suite, and um, they're, they're damaged to our biodiversity. Wallaby are great, but they're great in Australia. And when we were talking about it earlier this morning, I was saying that there's a kind of um, botanical xenophobia here. You know, we don't like foreigners, but it's actually much more subtle than that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And, um, you know, we've just got to... We've got so many threatened species in New Zealand and, and so many we just don't realise that we've got that are threatened. If we don't start to protect those, we're going to lose them forever. In a nearby part of Canterbury, but high above it, there's another pest hunting team which is also trying to fend off a foreign invader. The voice you'll hear above the engine noise is Steve Palmer, who works for another division of Environment Canterbury. So these little pockets that you can see out of the nose and up the hill, yeah. these are the ones we'd really like to sort of nail. So this was like our line in the sand. That line in the sand is actually a line on the side of a mountain. We're flying amongst high peaks of the Southern Alps and looking down on the magnificent Lake Pukaki. Up ahead of us is Aoraki Mount Cook, Aotearoa's highest peak. Can I point out that I was in the back seat behind Eugene and he has quite a fat head, so I didn't really see much of Aoraki at all, but carry on. I have a what? Anyway, 
This landscape speaks dominance and power. These majestic snow-capped giants are towers of strength. But as we look down, we can see it's a landscape under attack. So if we took our foot off the pedal, you'll have wilding conifers up to that snow line within probably 15 years. And it'll be blank and won't just be one or two. Yep. Wilding conifers or wilding pines. Trees. The Mackenzie Basin is under attack from trees that are racing up the hills towards the snow line. This is one of the most beautiful parts of the world. But when you're up there looking down, what do you see? Um, Well, quite frankly, I just see a a pest that has volume and it is just rapidly moving up into our most vulnerable landscapes. So, yeah, Steve Palmer is the program lead for the Wild and Conifer program within Canterbury. And I work for Environment Canterbury as a biosecurity advisor for special projects. Do you think of yourself as an environmentalist? Oh, that's a tricky question. Uh, I, no, I do. I, I'm, I'm not a tree-hugging granny or anything like that, I guess. But um, no, I feel like we're really doing something really, really worthwhile for the environment. Let's go back to basics. What is a wilding pine? So very broadly, a wilding pine is a self-seeded pine. It's something that it might have spread off a plantation or a shelter belt. There's one species which is particularly in Steve's sights, Contorta, the most vigorous spreading conifer species in the country. It's got such a light seed that in the right conditions it could travel up to 30, 35 kilometres. So, yeah, that's a long way coming out of the hills. Again, these are foreign species, so we had to ask, how did they get here? Well, Steve tells us many of these pines were initially planted with the help of government funding to help with another problem. A lot of what we're dealing with it was planted back in the 50s for erosion control. They planted a whole lot of plots of different species to see which one would take. And guess what? The nasty ones really loved it and just took off. So they were brought here for good, but they've turned out to be evil. Like virtually every pest we've got in New Zealand, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> so, whether it's possums, rabbits, stoats... Yeah, everything. There was an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly. In the case of the pines, the problems really took off in the 1990s when another high country pest, rabbits, were killed off in large numbers by an introduced virus and when grazing paddocks were returned to conservation land. Nature hates the vacuum and pests love filling those gaps. Without the rabbits or the cattle, the baby trees... Is that a thing? You, you know what I mean. Anyway, the baby trees took hold. So you don't have that nipping the seedlings off when they start to appear. And as the pines take over... It becomes a monoculture. There's nothing, there's no real biodiversity going on underneath it. Everything starts to look the same. It's no longer the, you know, blowing red tussocks in the Mackenzie Basin. It's just a wilding forest that you can't walk through. But it's not just that these trees are ruining the prettiness of the place. Probably one of the main things is the water. See... These introduced trees suck up all the moisture. When you're in the middle of a wilding forest, those streams are now dry. Stephen, his teams and contractors and others around the country, along with landowners, they're fighting, fighting hard, with millions of dollars being spent on control programs. They're knocking down the trees with machinery or spraying and returning to kill off the next generation too, because if they don't, the trees just keep on growing 
they're really efficient breeders. Or, as Adam put it... So it's like owning guinea pigs, basically. You start with two and uh, you pop out for, for a pint of milk and you come back and there are 76 of them. Yeah, yeah at least, yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, it, it's actually quite daunting when you look at it because it seems like it's just... It's rapidly expanding. Later that day, I headed out from the hotel for a run. And I had a bit of a moment, to be honest. Just out on a trail heading out of Twizel, and I've kind of had a revelation of what Steve was talking about. Oh, this is, should be beautiful. There's snow-capped mountains on one side, this gorgeous lake, man-made, uh, in front of me as I look down the trail. But all along the trail are these... Now I see ugly pine trees, these self-seeding trees of all sizes. There's some effort being made to cut down some of them. They're lying on their side, but, you know, all around now, all I can see is these pine cones and these small sapling trees taking root where the bigger ones, you know, have, have fallen. It's kind of a real stain on this what should be incredible view that I should be enjoying. I know what you mean, Eugene. And now Steve's opened my eyes to the possibility of bad trees. I'm having trouble figuring out what I'm seeing. You know, there are plenty of pine forests and stands of pines that aren't evil, right? So which is which? But like you, now I've been alerted to them, I can't look at a pine the same way. And it really would be a shame if this infestation of pines blotted out all those amazing Canterbury landscapes. You know, all those curvy, bare hills and mountains that New Zealand artists have painted so beautifully over the years. Which ones? Oh, like Rita Angus's Cass. I'll, I'll show you. Give me a sec. I'll just find it. If you can mess around on your phone looking for pictures on a podcast, I can too. Here we go. Okay. There it is. Rita Angus. Cass. There we go. So, you've got the hills in the background, you've got the lovely little train station in the front. Would you believe it? Look at that. Just behind the train station, pine trees. Look. But are they wilding pines? That's my point. I just can't tell. I just want to ask a sort of bigger philosophical question. <laughs> Let's get deep and meaningful. Is there an issue with the fact that these are exotics? as opposed to natives. I think if it was um, beech trees or totara grown, everybody would be happy as Larry. Right. But, yeah, they're, they're not. They're, they're, the whole aim of the program is to educate the public in the right tree in the right place. We're not saying we hate trees. We're just saying that some of them shouldn't be there. So after talking to Steve about the trees and Brent about the wallabies, it would be easy to start thinking, OK... When it comes down to conservation and pest management, there's an easy rule to apply. Native good, exotic bad. But what happens when it's the natives causing the problem? Are there actually examples of that where native species have kind of gone rogue? Mm, I don't know about going rogue, but yeah, there are examples. I asked the Department of Conservation about it and heard back from its senior biodiversity officer, Dean Nelson. He pointed out programs that have been carried out to deal with the southern blackback gulls. Kararo. Kararo, they're basically seagulls, right? White, head and body, black back, yellow bills, the little red spot on it. 
has a tendency to squawk and swoop if you go to a quiet beach, right? Yeah, that's the one. So Dean Nelson explained that there are parts of the country where kararo have got out of control. Basically, when there's a food supply from humans and they form colonies of hundreds or even thousands. So when their chicks start to hatch, they become, as Dean put it, voracious predators. I mean, it's tough feeding a young family, right? Exactly. And the problem is that sometimes they were preying on threatened native species. So on the Tasman River, for instance, there were cameras which caught them preying on the nests of black-fronted tern, the tarapetohe, eating their eggs. Yeah, sounds like going rogue to me. So yeah, basically, Doc started a control program, which is a polite way of saying killing them, to bring their numbers under control. And guess what? What? Black-fronted tern, tarapetohe, their nesting has improved. So... There's one example of the script you'd expect being flipped of one native species being controlled to protect another native species. But what about fighting to protect exotic species? Would that be taking things too far? That's coming up. A top-notch piece of journalism. Compelling listening. White silence. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for white silence. Very interesting. Sad that so many can be influenced by one little bastard. The Commune. Free love, group therapy and a guru called Bert. What could possibly go wrong? Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for The Commune. Kiato kiatata katoa, teat faiotu tata araki, ai we're back, and we're with Shirley Waru in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. She's reciting a karakia, a prayer. It's the same prayer Shirley said for some trees that were about to be cut down a few years ago. You can tell from her voice the trees meant a lot to her. And I, I asked the trees to forgive us that we hadn't fought hard enough. These emotions, this intensity, it was all stirred up by a stand of pine trees. Yep, exotic trees. But to Shirley, these cut-down trees, and others which are under threat in her neighbourhood, have special meaning, particularly because of their role in the environment. The native grey heron come here every year to, to nest in, in these particular trees. It's not just the pine trees Shirley's concerned about either. As she takes us on a tour of Utahuhu, Mount Richmond, one of Auckland's dormant volcanic yeah, cones, I, she points out plenty of other trees, oaks, elms, camellias. They're exotics and they've got deep roots. From what we can gather, many of the very, very tall trees here are over 100 years old. This thing's vast. What, what kind of tree is this? This is a Morton Bay fig. There's several of them on the mountain. And they're the oldest and the tallest, the most mature of most of the trees here. And the, the native birds and the exotic birds absolutely adore them because they have food. So exotic trees, native birds. It's nature and harmony, right? What could possibly go wrong? Well, 
there are plans afoot to clear this area and other Auckland volcanic cones of hundreds of exotic trees. Those plans, well, they've stirred a fair bit of raru-raru, conflict and controversy. Things have been heated for a couple of years, particularly after a group of local residents and supporters decided to occupy the Uwairaka Maunga, the mountain. One of the leaders of this group of protesters, who call themselves Honour the Maunga, is Anna Radford. I'm Anna Radford, and I'm the spokesperson for the Honour the Maunga Tree Protection Group. We came into being in late 2019 um, to protect 345 healthy, mature trees from being felled on Uwairaka, Mount Albert. Anna doesn't see herself as a rebel. Sure, she's signed a few petitions before, gone to a protest once or twice. The most recent one was when the government of the day was looking at allowing mining in national parks, and I thought that was a terrible thing. There was a protest march down Queen Street, took the kids along. My husband was horrified. (laughs) But Um, on the day the chainsaws were due to arrive to start cutting down the trees on the Maunga in her suburb of Mount Albert, Anna was there, even if she wasn't exactly ready for the reaction it would cause. And as soon as I saw the vehicles driving up the road, I burst into tears because I was so scared. As scared as she was, Anna stood firm. Like Shirley, she was there for the trees and the habitat they created. On a walk around the Uwairaka Maunga, she showed us what she means. So this is the cherry walk, which looks a bit underwhelming at the moment. But I actually think it's beautiful even now. And We're in a grove of cherry trees with ribbons tied to them by Honour the Maunga supporters to indicate which trees are for the chop. So if we look at this tree here, growing at its base is, see this little fern here? Uh, I don't know the, the name of it, but it's a native button fern. And it's just growing. And if you look at the bark here, I mean... There's all these incredible different like lichens, and this, this one here is, I think it's called Old Man's Beard. Further on, there's a magnolia tree. Let's have a look underneath. It's kind of like peeping underneath its skirts here. So that's a self-sown karamu, native. And then if we just walk around here, we can see a number of other examples, self-sown what I find with the self-sown things here is 99% of them are actually natives, not exotic. So look at this gorgeous, this is a kawakawa. Kawa. Yeah, and uh, this, this plant has a lot of medicinal properties. So, you know, for traditional rongua, yeah, rongua um, treatments, this, this like, if you take out this magnolia here, it's probably going to kill that kawakawa, and what a shame, because it's such a beautiful specimen. OK, so um, Anna clearly loves plants, exotics and natives. In fact, she once won a forest and bird competition for a garden of native plants in her backyard. She later shows us the garden. And this is a little miniature kawhai, and there's a moth that's a specialist kawhai moth, that, um, so I planted it for that moth. It's a great little garden. It is. Anyway. This quest Anna is on to protect the trees on Awaraka and in her way honour the maunga has seen her cop a lot of criticism, including being called a racist. If I had a dollar for every time I've had that chucked at me, I'd be a very rich person by now. Same goes for Shirley Waru, who we met on Otahuhu Mount Richmond. Yes, I've been called a racist. The racist word is very popular these days. Which um, just doesn't sit right with Shirley. Well, how can I be a racist? You know, I'm Māori. I'm not sure where this 
um, racist narrative has come from, but there seem to be an awful lot of very impatient people around at the moment who want everything to happen now. And they're not willing to give things time. Where has this narrative come from? And who are these people who Shirley thinks are being impatient? These people who want to chop down these exotic trees? Well, we should probably explain. This debate over exotic trees on these volcanic peaks in Auckland, Tamaki Makaurau, is about much more than trees. It's about much more than the self-setting kawakawa and the old man's beard and the native grey heron which shares space with the exotics. This debate has crashed into others about Māori ownership and rights, and so race has been drawn into the discussion. And who are the people behind the plan to cut down the trees? It's an organisation called the Tupuna Maunga Authority. It's a co-governance arrangement between the Auckland Council and mana whenua, the local iwi or tribes. We spoke with one of the Tupuna Maunga Authority's leaders, Nick Tudor. Kia ora, my name's Nick Tudor. I work as the kaifakahaere te wakatairanga whenua. We look after delivery of co-governance operations for Auckland Council. So the Tupuna Maunga Authority is called that because the Maunga, the mountains, are considered Tupuna, ancestors. They have their own identities and they have their own tribal stories associated with them. So in that regards, to mana whenua, they are considered ancestors, Tupuna. The maunga are really important from a cultural aspect. They help form the cultural identity of all of those iwi, and each of those iwi have long associations, tribal histories and stories associated with the maunga. And they've long had this unbroken connection with those sites. After the arrival of Europeans, the maunga was subjected to numerous indignities. The maunga we quarried extensively. He means literally dug up for their gravel and stones. On many, land was sold off into private ownership and houses were built up the slopes. Some of them remained as reserves. And of course, all sorts of trees were planted up there over the years, including those exotics which many people have a lot of attachment to. Anyway, in 2014, there was a Treaty of Waitangi Settlement. Uh, we're 14 to Pinamonga. We returned to Ngā Mana Whenua Tamaki Makoto, which was a collective of 13 Mana Whenua iwi. Under that arrangement, the Tupunamonga Authority was also formed, which is a co-governance arrangement uh, whereby it's equal representation from Auckland Council and Mana Whenua. OK, so hopefully you understand where things were at when this plan to cut down exotic trees came about. These volcanic cones, these maunga, which were considered ancestors by Māori, were back into local mana whenua iwi ownership, governed by this authority with council and iwi representation. So this plan, which included cutting down trees. I asked Nick, what is it the authority is trying to do? At the heart of what we are trying to do with all of the work of the Tupunamonga Authority is around healing the Tupunamonga. Healing the Tupunamonga. I guess it just needs to be held in context and perspective of what's occurred in Tamaki Makoto, you know, in terms of its development, in terms of these sites not necessarily being shown the love and protection and care that they could have been shown. Looking at these sites and thinking how spectacular they are, in hindsight it's always interesting to look back at things, you know, and you think, well, how could they have done that? How could they have put a road up there or how could they have quarried entire tihi away it sort of blows one's mind when you think about it you can't unquarry a tihi or summit 
But the authority has been able to do things to, in its words, heal the maunga, like stopping cars from driving up the cones and building tracks and boardwalks to stop damage to archaeological sites. Also, we are looking at, where possible, returning native vegetation to the maunga. So bringing back many of the plants that would have been there before colonisation. And yes, the plan includes... The removal of exotic trees. Some, as we know, have already been taken out. There was a grove of olive trees removed from Ultahuhu Mount Richmond in 2019. The authority wants to remove more, many more, hundreds of mature trees, many of them decades old which is the thing that's angering groups like those led by Anna and Shirley. The way Nick explains it, the authority is taking a wider view, one that is broader even than the massive span of those Morton Bay figs. The interesting thing about managing an archaeological site is you have to really look at all of the values, uh, not just the ecological values. So when we're removing plants, it's you know there's a range of reasons why we would be doing that. That's right. Nick is saying it's not just about ecological values. So what are those other reasons? Some of it's safety. Dangerous trees need removing, of course. Some of it is because they are pest species, like tree privets or monkey apples. But there's more. Um... And probably another important aspect is making sure that the sight lines from Maunga to Maunga, those historic sight lines that would have been really important vantage points in the day that these were fortified paths, clearing those so that you can actually get a sense of the Maunga as these fortified paths. Can you explain to me a little bit more about that particular aspect of the plan of being able to stand on the tihi, the summit, and see tihi to, to tihi, summit to summit? Why is that important and what is it saying? Yeah, that's a really good question. I guess uh, a lot of people don't sort of see these sites for what they are in terms of the last remaining cultural landscape features and what would have been an extensive cultural landscape prior to European arrival. Um, What we're really trying to do is you know, emphasise these sites from a cultural landscape perspective and re-emphasise that these weren't, these aren't just open spaces or parks. These are actually tupuna maunga, um, ancestral maunga. You know, it's really interesting to hear Nick talk about that. I, I know you said earlier, Eugene, that it was about more than just trees, but it wasn't until I heard Nick talking about that cultural landscape stuff that I started to understand that dimension of it. It's like They want to restore the Parthenon or fix the roof of Salisbury Cathedral or something. They want to reimagine the Maunga as pre-colonial built environments. Restoring the prestige of the Maunga is about really taking those steps to to care for it, to look at returning them to a way that they were. We recognise that we can't turn back the clock, but um, it's about representing those types of things that would have been there and looking at those moments and saying, well, how would they have fitted into the landscape in the days of our ancestors? And what does that mean? How can we, I guess, restore some of that back to the Maunga? So what did they look like in pre-European times? Nick explained that these volcanic cones with their rich soil were important for gardens for kai, food, rongawa, medicinal plants, and flax for weaving. But it wasn't just gardens. We know that uh, mana whenua undertook large amounts of earthworks to construct terraces and rua. Rua are roofed storage pits for seasonal crops like kumara. And these are pretty extensive considering the technologies at hand at that particular time. The authority wants to honour and retain those archaeological features and to plant gardens to support kai, whakairo, raranga and rongawa, 
traditional food, carving, weaving and healing, but also to restore native habitats for things like mokomoko, lizards. I've thought of the Maunga as the site of forests or parks, but certainly in the years after the arrival of Māori in Aotearoa, they were more than that, and many were built into pā, villages for instance. And of course, to Māori, they were and are tupuna, ancestors. I asked Nick about whether the plan to have those sightlines from summit to summit was about the Moinga being able to see each other, you know, one ancestor to another. Yeah, that's a really nice way of looking at it, certainly a romantic way of looking at it, but absolutely, as ancestral Moinga and that sort of personal identification that these have, there are connections, there are whakapapa connections between Moinga to Moinga. The romantic, eh? Hmm. I guess the point is that when it comes to decisions about which flora and fauna stay and which ones go, it's complex. Much more than I thought anyway. And look, I should say with this plan put forward by the authority, concerned residents took a court case which went all the way to the Supreme Court. The outcome was that the authority needed to consult more with the public about the plan, which they're doing. As we were editing this story, the authority said it had received 1,500 submissions. In response, it said it would amend its plan to say not all exotics would be removed, though there'll still be hundreds cut down. With all the pushback the authority's been getting, with all the barbs that have been exchanged and all the questions this plan has raised, why do we value natives more highly than exotics, who gets to make these decisions, and what else gets taken into consideration? I asked Nick, How important is it to bring people with you, or... Or is it just, we run the show, this is what's happening? We do get a sense that we are bringing people along on the journey. There are always going to be people in opposition of things that we're doing. Um, but, it's yeah, I, I don't necessarily think it's the wider majority of people. I think that we're certainly you know, doing our best to bring people along on the journey. Wait, wait, hold on. Hey, Eugene, whatever happened to that wallaby you spotted? Ah, yes. Well, I did ask Environment Canterbury, and it turns out, after I spotted it and reported it, the information was passed on to Brent, who we met at the top of the episode. Brent assigned it to contractors working in that area in Tekapo. Brent says it looks like that particular wallaby had broken through a fence and swum across the river until... He's having a lovely old time on Mount John. He bumps into me. Early morning, I report him. At this point, Brent shows me a wallaby death list. So this indicates that it was destroyed. Yes, we have baited up there, and I do believe that wallaby was actually hit with a ferrotox pill. Hmm. R.I.P. Mr. Wallaby. Or Ms. Wallaby, I'm no expert. What other true stories have you got coming up then? Oh, that tastes just like home. Tastes and smells just like summer. (sighs) That's next time. True Story is written and hosted by Eugene Bingham and me, Adam Dudding. Our producer is Jen Black. Our executive producer is Chris Reed. Editing and mixing by Connor Scott. Music by Audio Network, Blue Dot Sessions and Connor Scott. Graphics by Catherine George. Thanks also to Daniel Fraser, Laura Heathcote, Nadia Tolich, Jen O'Halloran, Janine Fennick, Joanna Norris, Aircraft Archipelago Choir and Mark Stevens.
If you have a true story or want to get in touch with us, you can email truestory@stuff.co.nz. That's truestory@stuff.co.nz. Got it? Ka kite. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. White silence. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for White Silence. Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. In The Human Race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's, it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers, you don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt abrasive doctor who I had you know had not seen before who delivered the news just like you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby the human race where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life I feel like I nearly missed out and I got to do it and so I feel really lucky so it's been incredibly positive listen today at stuff.co.nz slash the human race or wherever you get your podcasts the Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevate.